Welcome to a Nutrition in Clinical Practice podcast. I am Beth Krizda, Associate Editor of Nutrition in Clinical Practice. Joining me today is Dr. Timothy Lippman, author of the paper, Critical Reading and Critical Thinking, the Study Design and Methodology, a Personal Approach on How to Read the Medical Literature. This paper will be published in the upcoming April 2013 issue of NCP. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Whitman, who is Emeritus Chief GI Hepatology Nutrition Section at the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center, as well as Professor of Clinical Medicine at Georgetown University. Before we begin our discussion today, Dr. Whitman, I just have to ask you, do you have any disclosures pertinent to the topic? No, I do not, Beth. Okay. Dr. Whitman, I want to congratulate you on your long-term history of authoring and reading medical literature. I found your most recent article on a personal level not only essential for those who do do medical literature review, but I would also call it very provocative. I queried several colleagues on their approach to reading published research, and the consensus was, first of all, read the title and the abstract as a first pass. If the article appears to pique their interest, they will often scan the discussion and conclusions. Can you comment on this common approach to reading medical literature? Sure. Before I start, thank you very much for your kind words. What you describe is certainly the most common approach and what most people do. The problem that I have with this approach is we really need to ask ourselves, why are we performing research or why are we reading medical literature? Why are we reading research? What is the purpose of the clinical literature? And I think the answer to that is that we're trying to arrive at some form of truth about the world around us. And the question is, how close to this quote-unquote truth or reality are the findings from the paper that is in front of you? In other words, how robust or how good are the findings? If you want to know the, again, quote-unquote truth, you need to understand the question or questions being asked, how the authors set out to answer the questions, their methods, and what did they find the results. You should be searching for these answers yourself, not dependent upon the authors to interpret the findings. As you read the paper, you want to know if the question that was asked or that you think was asked was valid or was it appropriate? Did the authors use the best method for trying to determine the answer? Could they have used a different approach? How valid are the results with the approach that they used? And most importantly, as clinicians, how can the results be applied to our patients? So really, a, any clinical study is, is, is trying to assess the quote-unquote real world and how much of a reflection of that study is, of that real world is, is the study that you're reading. So it's sort of, that's a long introduction to your question, but many times I found a disconnect between the, usually the conclusions that are seen in the abstract or presented in the abstract, because the authors know that often people won't look further. And these conclusions, I find usually when I'm peer reviewing a paper for a journal, that these conclusions presented in the abstract, often even in the discussion, are not valid based upon the methodology and the results that are in the paper. So I think that the method you describe is common. It can or it should be, or it's often the first step to decide if you're interested in the paper. 
But if that's your only step or last step, then you really are dependent upon the authors for determining the world truth rather than making your own assessment of what the truth is and how it relates to the world. I'd just like to push you a little bit more and ask you, you defined your title as critical thinking and reading. Can you elaborate on that extra dimension added by the word critical? The dictionary gives a, when I looked up the word critical, it it's gave multiple definitions. What I'm talking about is really careful or analytic evaluations involving skillful judgment as to truth, merit, judicial approach. Some, I, I, I'm aware my background is somewhat of a curmudgeon, a cynic. I think many years ago I was listed as one of the original curmudgeonly members of the American Society for Parental and Natural Nutrition. I don't mean when I'm talking about critical, finding fault or judging harshly per se. But critical reading and critical thinking means looking at the study closely to determine how robust, how valid, how, again, true to the surrounding world the study is. That being said, often my critical reading, critical thinking does have some underlying assumptions. One is probably assume that the findings as claimed by the authors are probably overblown. This is just the nature of clinical research. This isn't because of overt cheating by the authors. Rather, it's because of systematic errors naturally involved with research and the nature of research. Again, going back to your first question, a, a report usually a clinical report represents a sample of a larger population of interest. If you do the same study on a different sample, you might get different results. So the critical reading really means looking at an article closely to determine what are the potential sources of error or errors. Thank you. Let's look a little bit more specifically at some of the aspects of an article or a research study. In terms of study design, we often hear prospective, controlled, randomized studies. This seems to be the ultimate in study design. Should we weigh this study design as the best and better than any other design? Best is probably not the most appropriate term because it really depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to determine causality, then the randomized control trial is the only way to determine that. Uh, if you're trying to say, if I do X, then Y will happen or will Y happen or what will happen, then you need a randomized control trial. All other comparative studies can only determine associations. Y is associated with X in some way, but you, you can't say that Y definitely follows X. It's not causal. So the randomized control trial is, is not appropriate for natural history. It may generate hypotheses, but you may want some observational or, or other types of studies first. And it's also difficult to do a randomized controlled trial for rare conditions or in time frames that are measured in decades rather than in just years or months or weeks. So that there are, there are limitations of randomized controlled trials. They're difficult to do, they're expensive, they're time consuming, they have problems with systematic errors, and they 
ultimately may not be applicable to your patients. But at the end of the day, the only way that we can determine the efficacy of an intervention is a randomized control trial. Randomized control trials will prove efficacy, will prove the, that an intervention works. Any other type of study can only show that Y is associated with X, is not caused by X. Thank you. That really puts in good perspective how you might view different study designs and at least some of the key points. One of the things we often hear about is looking for bias in studies. Can you discuss the concept of bias and how that would be recognized? Uh, the first thing to say is bias is not prejudice. It's Perhaps bias is not the greatest word to use, but it's evolved into what we talk about. It does not involve nefarious motives, but it is important to recognize, and bias usually refers to randomized control trials, although there can be bias in other types of studies as well. Bias in study methodology really equates to systematic errors introduced into the study which can alter the results. So that we're talking about systematic errors, we're not talking about prejudice or malfeasance. And there's a, a little bit of terminology. We talk about high-risk of bias studies, low-risk of bias studies, and there's an inverse here so that the risk of bias is really inversely related or associated with the quality of the study or the quality of the methodology. So low-quality studies we generally equate to high-risk of bias, whereas high-quality studies tend to have low-risk of bias. The importance of risk of bias is that high risk of bias studies are those with low methodologic quality. They tend to produce more positive results, more exaggerated outcome results. If the treatment benefit looks good with a high quality study, with a low quality study, it's going to look terrific. So that you get exaggerated results from low quality studies with systematic errors in their methodology, and so that we wind up with deviations from the quote-unquote truth that I talked about at the beginning. When you look at bias in clinical studies, you usually have to have a checklist either written down or sort of written or in your head. The Cochrane Collaboration has a formalized list. There are areas or issues or procedures that uh, you look at for the presence or absence that will tend to reduce bias, tend to reduce systematic errors. In randomized controlled trials, we wanted to see is, is there a true randomization? Was there an equal selection of subjects from your study population? Concealment of allocation is very important. It's probably the most difficult concept that I've come across. I have trouble explaining it, but the bottom line is it says that the investigator cannot cheat. Blinding or mask, or another term for blinding and is masking, meaning that the investigators and the subjects don't know which group they're in. I must say readers often, I find in my own fellows, they confuse randomization and masking. They're two different aspects of study design. You want to be able to account for all study participants. This is usually termed an intent-to-treat analysis. Are there any participants who are not accounted for? Because if you drop out participants, it may skew the results. If you have a study, a obvious but exaggerated example, is if you have a study in which an intervention group, 50% of your subjects die, and you eliminate them because they didn't complete the study and the rest are successful, you're going to have what looks like a very successful study, except that your intervention killed 50% of your subjects. 
which is probably not a good idea. Uh, the other things that you want to be looking for is what's termed selective reporting. Are there certain outcome events that were not reported for reasons that are not clear? Are there the correct number of subjects in the study? If there are too few, you can produce different types of errors called type 1 and type 2 errors in which the results may be true when you don't have enough subjects to prove it or the results may look good when they really aren't. And then the last thing that is becoming more important are vested interests, is some sort of bias because of a commercial vested interest, or do you have a professional career to advance? Do you have to publish and produce lots of studies, lots of literature to move up in the academic chain? Or do you want to defend your prior work? So that these are vested interests. There are other types of bias that really are not related to inherent in the study. A common one is called publication bias. This is the tendency for journals to report on these studies with positive outcomes or with a difference in outcomes, whereas a no different studies, which some people might call negative outcomes, but I think that's not a good term. You just say no, if, if an intervention doesn't work, there's no difference, that's important to know. And those studies tend not to get or be harder to publish, and that's termed publication bias. So it's a concept that's important in study design, study methodology, and we really have to understand it. It's not prejudice, but it has to do with the quality of the study. Can I ask you to just make a small comment on statistics? I must say that has got to be the paragraph that is most skipped over when readers are reviewing something. And you even note in your manuscript that statistics can be daunting. Any simple tips? Should we look at the statistics in the paper? What should we do? Well, you know, first of all, I admit statistics have always made me crazy and dizzy. Every time I've attended a lecture by a statistician, I tune out and buzz out very quickly. I think there are some core concepts to recognize. When we think about statistics, we always think about P. P is not a god. It's not a deity. It does not require animal sacrifices or other forms of worship other forms of reverence. You don't have to bow down before P. You don't have to genuflect before P. P is just a symbol for probability. It's arbitrary. We've, we've, we've selected P of 0.05 as being, quote, statistically significant. But that does, does it mean that a P of 0.051 is meaningless, while P of uh, 0.049 is profound. I mean, those are almost the same thing, and it's ridiculous to assume that, that one is meaningless and one is profound. P is a, a measure of chance. What is the probability of something happening? What is the probability that a finding was due to chance? Common example, if the weatherman predicts a 95% chance of rain, what do you bring to work? Are you going to bring an umbrella or are you going to bring sunglasses? In the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., a prediction of snow leads to panic, <laughs> unlike, I assume, what happens in Wisconsin, where you guys are used to snow. But So P is probability. P doesn't measure the importance of a finding. It just measures what is the likelihood due to chance. The things that I look for, is there a primary hypothesis? Because your primary statistics have to relate to the primary hypothesis. 
did, and this really relates to randomized controlled trials, did the authors estimate what differences they were looking, what's called an effect size determination, then did they do a power calculation, did they do a sample size determination to see how many patients should be in the study. Your statistical analysis, the, the ultimate p-value all derives from this. So when I look in the methods and the, the statistics, I say, I don't know how to do a power calculation but I looked to see if the authors did it. If they hired somebody or went into, or went into a computer program. Because if they didn't do that, then the statistics, I think, are suspect. You always look to see whether the primary outcome measure has a primary statistical analysis. The other thing you want to look for are the multiple measures. It's what's been termed the problem of multiplicity. The more you measure, the greater the chance that some finding will appear significant. Remember, P of 0.05 means that 5% of the time you're going to find a significant difference. If you measure 20 things, one of those is going to be, quote, statistically significant. So that it's these are the things I, I look at. The size of the P does not correlate with the clinical significance. It doesn't indicate the significance. It's all a measure of chance. Dr. Lippman, in conclusion, you mentioned throughout your paper that it's actually been a personal journey throughout your career in terms of critical learning and critical reading. Do you have a short advice to a novice beginning this path of critical review? You know, it's tough because I was lucky. I've had, two, as I mentioned in the paper, really two mentors. My chief of gastroenterology started us doing with journal clubs where he just focused. He said, all we're going to do is focus on the methodology and the results, and you see what flows from there. And then long-term friendship and relation, professional and personal friendship that I've had with a colleague, Dr. Ron Korps, who's been very much interested in this. For the novice, I think that, one, this is the, the most important thing is to say this is not easy, but find an article of interest using the method we, you talked about at the beginning, the title, the abstract, the discussion as, as your initial screen. Then, as practice, read only the last sentence of the introduction, read the methods, and read the results, and then formulate your own conclusions. Find a quality checklist. I give one in Table 2 in the article. And ask yourself, do your conclusions agree with the authors? They may not. See what you, after you've read the hypothesis, the last sentence of the introduction, your methods and results, how would you title the study? Does your title differ from the author's title? Find articles on methodology and read them. They may be difficult, but it's any topic that I've talked about, systematic error, risk of bias, intention to treat, randomized controlled trials. The wonderful advantage of the World Wide Web, the Internet, and search engines is you can plug any of these things into your favorite search engine, be it Yahoo, Google, Bing, and you get all sorts of information, and I still do this. You've got to recognize that most folks don't know how to do this. They don't do it. If you can, find a mentor, practice, practice, practice. Find, try to either find or formulate a journal club in which your focus is not just how many articles you can read, but how long can you read one article where you look at that article in depth. It takes work can't be learned from a single article or attending a single course. I've been doing this for 35 years, close to 40 years, and I'm still learning. Thank you, Dr. Lippman. 
for sharing your expertise and your personal insight today with our listeners. I invite our readers to find out more about this, as I say, provocative topic in Dr. Littman's article, April 2013, Issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice.